Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How are you feeling? I'm doing great. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I tried to make it sound like we haven't been talking for an hour. <laughs> I tried to make it sound like, oh, you're doing well? I didn't know this. Nailed it. Thank you yeah. so much. Acting. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, listen, I'd love to see that for you. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I I can't complain. Hey, that's great. Now, listen, I got to address something right sure. out the gate. For any of the <clears throat> dear listeners who uh, view us on YouTube, they may notice yeah. that I'm a little au naturel currently. Very fresh-faced. Sure. So, long story short, too late, I had an appointment with my dermatologist today because the greatest kept secret that I've kept over the course of my the last 10 years is that I have rosacea so whenever people comment about how great my skin is I'm like (laughs) okay um I mean the texture of my skin is good but it's it's red it's I get flushed it's red whatever so I was getting a checkup and then I didn't have time to do my makeup before we logged in and then I was like you know what this is this is what it is I'm gonna present I'm gonna present as I'm going to say it as I came into this world. Why? Why? Gross. <laughs> there was no need for it. I, I just like that hearing you say I'm going to present immediately. I was I thought of like animals in the jungle, um, like a peacock presenting its tail for sure. the ladies. You know, yeah. I, think, I think baboons show their butts or something, don't they? Thank you for baboons. <laughs> I really like How that. do you say it? Yep. I, well, I would say, I would say, um, baboons. But you just really sped it along. Baboons. It was like B apostrophe B for, for you. 
shit. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I would normally say baboons. I <laughs> right? Baboons. <laughs> baboons. Oh, boy. Listen. Yeah, I'm full tears over that one. Oh, yeah. Baboons. Look, I don't know where that came from. I don't well, know. I'm not, I'm not mad at it at all. It's a joy to laugh. <laughs> feels makes you feel alive. Um, yes. So anyway, I was seeing my dermatologist who is fantastic and has been, you know, wonderful to me over many, many years. And uh, I brought up to her. Now, I don't know if I've even told you this, but recently my eyes have been so sensitive. Now, my eyes are always sensitive. If I go on a roller coaster, I'm full tears. I've called them my baby eyes for years. Can't deal with the sun. Always have to be in a sunglasses. Always. Um, Sure. But lately... It's like I'll wash my face even, and after I'm finished, my one eye is blood red. The whole eye, blood red, itchy. I'm like, what is this about? Now, for those of you, dear listeners, who are already on your devices crafting me what you think the explanation is, pause. Just pause. (laughs) Hear the whole story because I think you're really going to love it. So I'm telling her this and she's asking me a bunch of very pertinent, you know, doctor questions. Like it's like, are you wearing any new products? Maybe you should try this. Maybe you could do that. And uh, and so I'm like, yeah. And she's like, and I said, but the thing is, it goes away. So it's like, I'll wake up, I'll wash my face. My eye will be bright red for like six hours and then it's fine. So I so I was like, you know, of course, when my eye was first doing this, I was like, I can't have pink eye. There's no way how how? Please tell me it's not. Like, what is the possibility here? And I was like, but then it would go away. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's not that. And so I said, it's primarily my right eye. And she's like, do you sleep on your right side? And I said, yeah. She goes, well, you know, it could be if you're not letting like an eye cream or a moisturizer dry before going to bed, you sleep on it. And then it's kind of like pushing it up into your eyes so that by the time you wake up in the morning, your eyes, you know, sure, that makes sense. And then she says, do you have any new pets in the house? And I said, yeah. Yeah, I have, a, I have a new dog. Does the dog sleep with you? And I was like, she does. She does sleep with me, yeah. Do you normally have have dogs sleeping with you? And I was like, I guess not in a full night situation. Peaches would sleep, take naps with me, but she didn't sleep with me at night. Fox hates it. Fox refuses to sleep in the bed with me. Of course. And so I said, what do you think? And she's like, well, it it could be dander. It could be, you know, that that you, there's like an allergen or whatever that you're not used to. And I said, well, she sleeps kind of like below the belt typically. Like she's usually like below my waist. Like she's not up and around sure. my face. And she's like, yeah, you've been feeling sick at all? What do you mean? You got any like cold symptoms that just won't go away? I said, yeah, but just since January, I brought her home January 1st. (laughs) She's like, you need to try an antihistamine and see if if, if that resolves the problem. Oh, so here's and listen, I want to preface this by saying sweet bean has done nothing wrong. There's no problem. We will make this work. It's not she's still going to sleep in the bed. I like having her in the bed. Not a problem. There are ways that I'm sure we can work around this and adjust. But it was watching because I've talked about it on the show for so many weeks that I'm like, I can't get well. I always feel like I have a cold. I can't get rid of this like stuffy nose. (laughs) 
I was like, it was like the matrix all coming together. And then, and this was the moment, this was the moment for me. My dermatologist says, don't you have a true crime podcast? <laughs> and I said, be a better detective. I'm hearing you loud and clear. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. I loved the shade. The jokey shade was fantastic. I was like, I love that we got to the bottom of this so quickly. And <clears throat> this has been plaguing me for, you know, three full months. Yep. Yep. So what a revelation. Wow. Then, of course, I did a bit of a Google and pugs are one of the few species of dogs that sheds year round. They don't have seasonal sheddings like sure. other breeds of dogs. And I want to remind you, Bean is mostly pug is what we found out from her DNA test. Right. So the, also the other thing is, is the other dogs have never bothered me, but they also were like extremely short haired, like peaches barely shed at all. Like you could like, you know, nothing was coming off that dog. Fox, right? not much. I didn't think that she was shedding that much, but as we know, it's also the dander, right? So right. the revelation of this is just oh. killing me because I was like, it's just for the last three months. I've just had these really sensitive eyes. And a cold that won't go away, no matter what I seem to do. <laughs> I mean, I what a say reveal. this. What a reveal. I say this with love yeah. to both of us. Yeah. How did we not put that together? Yeah. It's weird. I've been feeling unwell ever since getting a dog. <laughs> I don't think those things are connected. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Because I've okay. never had an allergy to um, animals before, but again, it is a new kind of dander. It's a new dog. I'm not used to this dog. I'm right. sure that over time, I will probably get more used to it. There's science behind that. Um, sure. And in the meantime, there's things that I can do. Like, I'm sure that there's, uh, you know, different shampoos that I can use on her that maybe will help the dander, all of the above. And Sure. You know. But yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, I am it just, excited about this. It it's nice, me up. yeah, to know that that's a reasonable end. It's something that has. It, it, there's it's some a nice explanation. It's a nice explanation. There's some action items that I can take. You yeah. know, because uh, I was starting to become very worried that there was something very deeply wrong with my immune system like i was like am i is this a larger illness is this how i find out i have a terrible larger illness god forbid by the way and i'm not being glib i'm being genuine i've started to panic yeah. about it because i'm like i've been sick for three months like this is crazy not in sure. my wildest dreams did i ever think maybe a dog allergy wow yeah yeah didn't see that coming i know nope. is it time to hang up the detective <laughs> Don't you have a true crime podcast? Oh, yeah, I be like a better detective. A I hear you. I hear you. It was just, it was such an amazing, it was as though I had written that scene for a TV show. It was so amazing. It's yeah. just like, it's so obvious when you see it laid out. Right. We, we, that's the, we didn't step back. We didn't look at the whole picture. We were looking at tiny pictures. Yep. Uh, without looking at the full thing. Yeah. That was the problem. And I've never Learning lived with a, a pug before is the other thing. I've been around pugs, but yeah. not that regularly. And yeah. Wow. Anyway, I feel very confident that we will get this into a great place. I'm not worried. Again, it's, uh, you know, 
these are the these are the fun growing pains of having a, a new child in the house. But sure. uh, how funny. And of course, then it makes the eyes make sense. Of course yeah. it does. And the fact that it's like it's red for a few hours and then goes away because I've like rubbed dander in there without knowing. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Yeah. Again, when you when you see it laid out. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. seems so obvious. Like at no point in any of these last few months did we ever say, <laughs> okay, so what changed around the time you started getting sick? I've literally said, I believe on this podcast, I've literally said since January, this entire year, all of 2023, I've been sick. <laughs> okay. Well, yep. hey, case solved. Case is solved. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. That's like the second one we've solved in the last two and a half years. <laughs> We're doing pretty well. Well, if I know anything yeah. from law enforcement, sometimes it could take them decades to solve one. Hey, well, so there I you think go. that's positive. I mean, sure, the first one, we just felt like we solved it ourselves, so we called it solved. Which one was that? I love that I've forgotten. Um, oh, no. Thelma Todd. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, we yeah. solved that. Yeah. That we're, in the end, where we both just went, well guess it's solved <laughs> that i don't know if we broke mentally there or not but i love that i was trying to think of her name and i was like it starts with a t and i almost said tawny katane <laughs> <laughs> baboons <laughs> baboons baboons uh. <laughs> oh my god Baboon. tawny katane different lady different lady wildly different yeah very different i was like it's a name a, a famous person. Name starts with a T. Mm-hmm. Tawny Katane. Tawny Katane. Wowza. Wowza. That's where I'm at. That Listen. is... That's where I'm at. Well, look, the you other know? place where I'm at is I have I have so many cans. They're just cans. I like that. On the go. I've got a Diet Coke. I've got a, a, a Tangerine LaCroix. And I got a Lime High Noon because... Life's short. It's too short yeah. to be sober. Did you see they've come out with a black cherry? Oh, I've had I the black know. cherry, baby. Oh, yeah, Is yeah, it good? Yeah. It's yeah. delicious. The peach is good. The, the peach, the lime, the black cherry, and the mango are probably my favorite. Hey. Watermelon's good, too. Watermelon dry. I, uh, I like that a lot. Thank you. Um, I heard recently that Mike's Hard is bringing back the lime. Shut your mouth because people had maybe a scotch of a complaint that they got rid of it and by people i mean half of this show yeah <laughs> it was always so the actually, best one. Oh, i'd slam some of those always. right now well they said at one point they brought out a blackberry pear and i tried desperately to find it never did yeah i don't remember that one i would like to give that a go but i'm gonna write down uh, Mike's hard. I'm going to add lime so I don't get distracted by what I've written down. Uh, I'm going to circle it a couple of times and maybe I'm going to go check some sort of adult store tomorrow. Adult store? Is that <laughs> what we're calling the liquor store? Because 
adult story has a bit of a t- different connotation. <laughs> What's happening over there? Oh, my sweet baboon. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I meant liquor store. For some yeah. reason, I I felt <laughs> I had to be weird about saying liquor you wanted store. To, I meant a liquor store. You might get a little cutesy with it, and, and then you realized, oh boy, that means something else. Not that it there's any judgment about adult stores, by the way. To go to an but. adult store looking for Mike's Hard. Hey, you guys got any, uh, you got any Mike's Hard back there? Or <laughs> if you go into an adult store asking for Mike's Hard, you might get something else. <laughs> oh, I'm guaranteed it. <laughs> oh, yeah. God, what a gift but in look, my life. I'm gonna... I don't know why I felt the need. I ha- I don't know why I felt I needed code words for it. We're all yeah. grown ups here. We all know what we don't want. Also, I'm very legal age, so it's not like I'm doing anything wrong, and I'm paying for it. So it's also not a bad thing. So tomorrow I'm gonna go fuck up a liquor store. There it is. I'm gonna get a cart. Yep. Oh shit. That's when you mean business. I'm gonna get a cart. Yeah. I miss Mike's Hard Lime. Um, yeah. Because the Mike's hard drinks in the States are very different. I think we talked about yes. this on the show a long time ago, but for those yes. who don't remember, it's a very different beverage in Canada. So the Americans yeah. who are potentially like, those things taste like crap. You're right. Here they do. But back home, they're the nectar of the gods. They're delicious. Because Canada, we put vodka in them. Yeah. Yeah. America does not. What do, what's America put in it? They use malt liquor. Right. Yeah. Right. It's It's not... <clears throat> it tastes completely different, completely different. But you know, yeah. I rem- I I remember when I was young, when we were young. Um, could not be more chaotic than I am right now. Uh, <laughs> I would take probably a twenty dollar bill to go to the bar. Kay. To go to the bar, and the bar is like so part of Harbor that I yep. I couldn't be happier. And uh, that would buy me three. Smirnoff ices plus some t- plus tip. They were like five dollars each, but I was like, wow, you know, sure. I'm gonna tip obviously. Sure. So, um, and boy, oh boy, when I think about what my hangovers were then compared to now, it then it was literally like I had a headache for 20 minutes. I'd just slam something greasy and be 100 percent back to normal. Now, it's like if I look at a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc, I could throw up in the night just out of nowhere. That's where my hangover, or not even my hangovers, that's where my drinking currently is. Yeah. And I know that people, uh, there's been a lot of people online who've commented about us not drinking on the show as much, which we have addressed on the show. Um, But the, the big thing is, is that this started in the pandemic when we were drinking all day, every day. Everybody was. Uh, sure. God bless. Now, um, we, I mean, for me, like I've, I've had a, I have a very demanding job. It does not always yes. allow for me to be drinking on a random, you know, Tuesday evening. It's uh, yeah. just not possible. And truthfully also, it's that the recovery is not kind. No. So it's not me, just. Day two is the worst. Day two is the worst. Day one is like, I don't think I'm great, but I feel off. Just off. Yeah. And then day two, you're like, this is hell. Yeah. And you're like, that's not even fair. I didn't even drink. This is a whisper of a dream of the drink that I had. Yeah, it's the worst. A whisper of a dream. I love that. <laughs> it reminds me of hit NKOTB song, The Whisper. That is a fucking... <sighs> I... Are you crying? I was... No, I was going to 
I prevented myself from saying it. What was going to come out naturally was that was a real blaster. Like I think I, <laughs> I think you meant like banger. Well, I know, but I think I was thinking like you blast the sound system when it comes. <laughs> what happened between last week and this week? Like, how did you age forty five years? Like, it, it, it's it's amazing. I absolutely have. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I've just mentally broken in the last few days somehow. Oh. What have I done? I don't remember. You probably have for me. There's always something going on for me, and I feel like you're just taking it on like an empath and and breaking with me, you know? You know what it is? What? I didn't do a Slurpee today. They're keeping you young. My body... My body is trying to produce that same amount of sugar, and it's giving me a sugar high that causes baboons. <laughs> My sweet baboon. <laughs> I've lost it. I've lost it. Uh, the Whisper, what a fucking catchy song. It's so good. It's just <sighs> so good. Um, One other thing very quickly before we get into the case. Yeah. Christy's currently wearing a Peekaboo Desperado shirt. I am. And for those who don't know, over on Patreon, uh, we played a game once because Christy doesn't watch reality TV like I do. So the game that we yes. played, which we need to do another round of, I need to, to come up with another round of. Oh, I can't wait. I give her the description of a real reality show and she comes up with the title that she thinks it is. Yeah. And so I gave her the description of one of my favorite new reality shows, which is Help, I'm in a secret relationship. And when I gave her the the rundown of what that show is about. The title yeah. she came up with was Peekaboo Desperado, which for me is probably <laughs> the funniest thing I've heard anybody say. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, this season of the show is wild. Wild. Sure. Um, truly everything I want one of those shows to be. It has kind of a catfish vibe, but it's a different thing. And I just want to give a shout out. I want to give a shout out to the hosts, Ronnie Jones and Travis Mills. I love everything about it. It's not ironic. I think it's a great show. I think that they're doing some wild television uh, in a great way, and I'm all about it. Hey! And if it gets back to them that you thought the name of the show should be Peekaboo Desperado, that would tickle me. (laughs) My sweet baboon. Yeah, look, uh, she has moments uh, where it's great that she opens her mouth and funny things come out. And then she has moments where she opens her mouth and things come out uh, that are less great. Look, I I tried to play a game uh, with my husband yesterday. He didn't know we were playing, (laughs) uh, which is my favorite kind of game. Of course. Um, And anything he would say, I would just I would answer with like the dumbest fucking thing ever. And he just kept going, I don't understand what's happening. Like, what's going on with you right now? And I'd be like, exactly, right? And he's like, what? And I'm like, I know, absolutely. He's like, what are you even saying? I'm like, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, it, dro- <laughs> it drove him crazy. So it couldn't like, have been more delighted. Like a low-level gaslight. <laughs> yeah. I like that for you. So do I. As a woman, I was happy to do it. (laughs) (laughs) 
I shouldn't have got as much joy out of it, but I would also just like say random words and he'd be like, what? And I'd be like, pickles, am I right? Yep. Like to a point where he, I think he thinks he was having a stroke. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, that's where I want them, where they think mentally something has happened. I guess maybe this is how I could approach dating. You know what I mean? I'll just start talking in ways that they don't understand. And then when they get disoriented, I I throw a giant net over them and then, you know, hope for the best. Yeah. Hey, how else do you catch a sweet baboon? (laughs) (laughs) Baboon. I also love that it followed with me going, how do you say it? And then then I I really had to think about it. But I was like, no, I'm not wrong here. (laughs) This is not. And then realizing, oh, no, I don't say it that way either. No. Not that it comes up. I mean, when's the last time we've said baboon in conversation? Like, probably talking about Untamed Heart, to be honest. Oh, Magic Records in Happy Baboon baboon Heart. heart. (laughs) You almost got me believing in it. Thank you very much, Marissa. You're very welcome. Um... Oh, God. Oh, I watched that movie so many times. This is why we're broken for romance. (laughs) Yeah. People are like, oh, Disney movies destroyed us and all of that. And I'm like, no. Christian Slater and his baboon heart. Yep. And fucking Ben Affleck. Tracing Amy. Yeah. You know what I'm realizing, though, about... I just have to say, and this is not a criticism because it is one of my favorite movies of all time, but I do really think that not until this point in my life Mm -hmm. did I really understand because on paper, if it was like Marissa, or you know, the character named Caroline, I love that I can pull it that quickly, but Marissa Tomei's character, Caroline, and in Untamed Heart, she said such a bad time dating. She said so many bad things happened to her that she's willing to date a man who believes earnestly that he has the heart of a baboon that he has magical records uh that works as a dishwasher at her restaurant um that's how bleak it got for her (laughs) that that guy (laughs) that guy was the guy but you know what that that programmed us to also is that thing where it's like doesn't matter any red flags ignore him because he could be a prince or maybe he's just got some some issues you know what i mean like yeah. That's not to say you shouldn't give people a chance. Of course you should. But I think I think certainly I'll speak for myself. It did not necessarily instill the right level of how much you should give people chances. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they definitely pushed a limit in yeah. that movie of how 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 far should you bend your I wouldn't date anybody who whatever. Right. How far would you bend that list? There's a fine line. To go out with someone whose face looks like Christian Slater's. Right. Well, there is that. Um, There is a fine line, I think, between red flag and charming with with him. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, but he's so so charming. Like, he's so unique. He's so different. Sure. Sure. Look, the the haircutting scene in that movie is like porn to me. (laughs) It's, yeah. it's like something yep. I'd buy at an adult store. <laughs> I'll have a Mike's Hard and the haircutting scene the from haircutting Hard. <laughs> now that's an evening. That's a night. I like that. Yep. Oh, I like that. Oh, God. That was around the same time I was really watching a lot of Mad Love. Oh. 
But another movie that is kind of like, you know, there was some there was some red flags there. But again, it's that 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 manic pixie dream girl peak Drew Barrymore manic pixie dream girling. Um, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Shit. I loved that movie. I watched that movie recently. Did you? I haven't seen it in years. Oh, you got to watch it. it. It's so good. But I think it is just pieces of a bigger picture of like what the content was during that era. There was a lot of like, hey, does this person seem kind of dangerous? And like, maybe they may kill you in your sleep. Exciting, right? Could be a romantic partner. Like, that's the vibe (laughs) that a lot of the content we viewed as kids, you know, which isn't necessarily the good messaging. The messaging will be, you know what it is? Yeah. A romantic comedy where it's like, look at how normal this person is. That would be the thing. Person seems kind of boring. That's who you should be going for. That's that's a that's a safer person than some of these other people that we've put on pedestals. What I'm learning, yeah, is we need to start creating content now for the children of the future to watch that to grow into automatically seeking out healthy relationships. That's nice. It's like people are like make kids shows with like stem and i'm like make kids shows with just nice love nice love why not boring love that's what it should be oh look you say boring i go he goes what's going on with you and i go potatoes right (laughs) (laughs) you call that boring (laughs) i guess what i'm hearing is you've entered your mad love phase your manic pixie dream girling as we speak Oh, if I had a magazine right now, I'd absolutely cut the eyes out of it and stick it on my wall. Yeah. Shout out Drew Barrymore. Shout out Chris O'Donnell. Yeah. What's he up to? You loved him. Oh, I did. Yeah. I did. But then I felt like I had to dial it back. And I could be mixing up who it is. I believe it was my friend in high school, Kimberly, who... uh had a huge thing for Chris O'Donnell and I mm. felt like I I felt like I couldn't. Right. So I had to let it go. But I mean, I also what uh, the friend group allowed me to have Leo, so yeah, I couldn't be too uh I couldn't be too greedy. Pig beggars can't be choosers. No. But like Leo's a blonde, Chris is a brunette and sometimes like Baskin Robbins he just <laughs> What? Now, 21 flavors. You've just said something that is going to, we don't have the time right now to fully get into, but are we calling Chris O'Donnell a brunette? Like, I just don't. <laughs> is it? Really? Isn't he? Oh, look What it is up. he? I remember him as a blonde. Oh, shit. But I've I'm been... thinking of, I'm currently right now picturing the cover of the VHS tape of The Bachelor. Do you remember that? Oh, sure. Him okay, and uh, no. Renee Zellweger? You know, a lot of these, he's currently definitely a brunette. Oh. Okay. A lot of these picks, he does look like a brunette. I'm just going to look up Mad Love real quick because I wonder if that's my mind's eye. I. Still a brunette. Full brunette. Absolutely a brunette. Um, Yep. You are right. I am wrong. No. I mean. No, I was. I'm sure he was a blonde at some point. Not long enough. Um, also, shout out Matthew Lillard. Also oh, in yeah. Mad Love. Oh, well, shit. Then I do have to watch it. Yeah. Yep. 
Okay, I questioned whether I was right about the title, but no, it was uh, 1999's The Bachelor. And this was specifically the cover I was thinking of. Very brunette. Yeah. Very brunette. Well, on that hard-hitting note, (laughs) let's get into the case, my sweet baboon. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh, my God. He's on NCIS Los Angeles. Yeah. Has been for years. And has been for 319 episodes. Well... Christy, you dumb fuck. She just said, like, (laughs) what's he doing now? For the last several years, Lady Jane, he's been on a little program called NCIS Los Angeles. I mean, 300 episodes. LL. Fuck. Yeah. It is true. Ladies do love cool James. Um, Well, 300 episodes is going to be many, many years because, again, it took Superstore six years to get to just over 100. So Eric Christensen Olsen. Was on the show for 297. Oh, my God. How am I not watching this show? Should I be watching this show? I I don't have time. I know. But maybe you should just give yourself a little taste. Let's see. It started in 2009. They have 14 seasons. Do you know that the sick, sick part of my brain immediately is like, that's a challenge. How quickly can I binge 397 episodes? I know you. And so that makes complete sense. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be a challenge. Potatoes, right? I was going to say potatoes, right? (laughs) AKA, she's always a challenge. Oh. I like to think of it as spicing it up. Power to the world. Spice up your life. Yeah, I like that. Well, listen... We're going to get into the case. The case, of course, we're talking about is Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume. Um, this was our February patrons poll over on patreon.com slash Cocktails. We have a subscription-based service, and one of the things we offer is a poll that you can vote on to help decide what episodes we're going to cover once a month over here on the main feed. So check that out if you're interested. But for now, let's get into a little bit of a backstory about the Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume case. In June 1954, Nora Parker was found bludgeoned to death in a public park in New Zealand. Police questioned Nora's teenage daughter Pauline and Pauline's best friend Juliet as they were the last people to see Nora alive. Both girls immediately denied any involvement before ultimately confessing to the crime. The case and the trial that followed became a media sensation and to this day, it is considered one of the most notorious events in New Zealand's criminal history. So, what actually happened to Nora Parker? What was the motive behind the attack? And where are the killers now? Christy Oxborough investigates. Yeah, she does. Hell yeah, she, she does. She really does. Oh, God. Well, just getting right to it. Disclaimer, as always. Yep. This particular episode features mentions of suicide, eating disorders, and descriptions of graphic violence. So trigger warning for those who need it. On June 22nd, 1954, 15-year-old Juliet Hume went for lunch at the home of her best friend, Pauline Riper, at 31, oh boy, I should have looked this up, Gloucester uh, Street in Christchurch, New Zealand. In attendance were also Pauline's 17-year-old sister, Wendy, and Pauline's parents, Herbert and Honora Riper, known as Bert and Nora. 
Pauline and Juliet had requested a picnic in Victoria Park, but Nora insisted on having lunch at home. However, Nora agreed to take the girls to the park afterward. After lunch, Bert and Wendy headed to their respective jobs at the Dennis Brothers Fish Shop and a department store's lingerie counter, respectively. Nora took Pauline and Juliet for a walk down Gloucester Street through Chancery Lane to Cathedral Square. They took the Cashmere Hills bus five miles or eight kilometers south to Victoria Park, an area of reserve land which opened to the public exactly 57 years on that day, on June 22, 1897, to be exact, in honor of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. And shout out to the 1986 Disney classic The Great Mouse Detective for teaching a young Christy Ash all about what a Canadian or what a uh, Queen's Jubilee actually was. And it stuck with me to this day. Absolutely. That was one of my favorite movies uh, when I was a child. But I also don't think it gets a lot of love. I think it a doesn't. lot of people forget it. Like Oliver and Company. People forget that one. And it's what like, why should I worry? Oh. Yep. Why should I care? Oh, yep. my God. It's a beautiful Are you thing. Are me? Stop it. Ah, uh, so. Shortly after 2 p.m., Nora, Juliet, and Pauline visited the tea kiosk in the park where they ordered a pot of tea, some soft drinks, cakes, and scones. When they were done, they paid the bill and left just before 3 p.m. Around 3.30, Agnes Ritchie, who worked at the tea kiosk, was scooping ice cream for two small children when she saw Juliet and Pauline running up the stone steps towards the kiosk. Agnes recognized the girls from earlier. However, now the girls were covered in blood and they were frantic. One of the girls screamed, quote, Mummy has been hurt. It's Mummy. She's terribly hurt. She's dead. The other girl said, quote, it's her mother. She's hurt. She's covered in blood. Please, somebody help. Agnes's husband, Kenneth, who worked as a caretaker for the tea room, asked Pauline where her mother was, and she said that Nora had slipped and hit her head on a rock. Kenneth grabbed a towel from the house, and he and his assistant, Eric McIlroy, headed in the direction that Pauline had told them. While Kenneth and Eric were gone, the girls asked to call their fathers. No one could get through to Bert's fish shop, so they called Juliet's father, Henry Hume, who said he would come and get both girls. While they waited, Agnes gave the girls tea, which she later said Pauline gulped down without hesitation, despite the fact that it was scalding hot. Whoa. Agnes asked what happened, and Pauline said, quote, She slipped on a plank and hit her head on a brick. Juliet responded, quote, Don't talk about it. I can't bear to talk about it. Pauline said they tried to pick Nora up and carry her, but she was too heavy, and they dropped her. Kenneth and Eric ran a quarter mile, or 402 meters, down the track when they saw a woman lying on her back near a bridge. The woman's head was broken and bloody, and her skirt was up around her thighs. Kenneth pulled the hem of the skirt down to cover the woman's knees. The ground, uh, about a foot on the ground, about a foot from the woman's head, was a half of a brick covered in blood and bits of hair. Kenneth knew the woman uh, knew that the woman, who was later identified as Nora Riper, was dead. 
He ran back up the hill towards the tea kiosk just as an ambulance arrived. He said he needed to call the police because Nora's death did not look like an accident. Nora was born on Nora Mary Parker on December 18, 1907 in Birmingham, England. When Nora was just two years old, her father Robert was admitted to the city asylum where he died in January 1921 at the age of 39. His cause of death was general paralysis, which was a euphemism at the time for tertiary syphilis. Mm. Well, uh, most may know that syphilis is, of course, a uh, bacterial infection spread through sexual contact. Apparently, something I did not know until this, tertiary syphilis is the fourth and final stage of the disease, and it can occur 10 to 30 years after the initial infection, which is just wild to me. Yeah. So when Robert was first admitted, the family had to sell their house, but after Robert's death, Nora and her mother, Amy, moved to New Zealand in 1927. Nora had a brother named Robert Clive, who was born in 1910, but I could not find any other information about him, so I don't know if he moved with them, stayed behind, or possibly, as was common at the time, didn't survive long past infancy. Nora and Amy arrived in Raiatihi, New Zealand, where Nora got a job as a secretary at an accountant firm. She soon started a relationship with accountant Bert Riper, who was born Herbert Detlev Riper in 1894 in Tasmania. At the time of their relationship, Bert was 33, Nora was 19. Oh. By the <clears throat> mid-1930s, Nora and Bert had moved to Christchurch, where they lived as husband and wife. Nora gave birth to the couple's first child, a boy named Herbert Parker Riper, in October 1936. Unfortunately, he was born with cardiopulmonary defects, and he did die the same day he was born. Nora had a daughter, Wendy Patricia Parker, in March 1937, and in March 19. 19- 49, she gave birth to Rosemary Parker, who was born with what we now know today as Down syndrome. When Rosemary was about four, she was sent to Templeton Farm, an institution for intellectually disabled children outside of Christchurch. And before people get angry about it, just know they did visit her regularly. They brought her home for visits, including over Christmas. I'm not saying that makes it any better, but it's better than them putting her somewhere and never seeing her again true was my only point i was trying to make yes between wendy and rosemary nora gave birth to another daughter pauline yvonne parker on may 26 1938 around the age of five pauline developed an inflammation of the bone marrow called osteomyelitis uh, in one of her legs it required several surgeries and pauline spent about eight to nine months in the hospital the pain was so bad that even 12 years later, Pauline still required aspirin and codeine at night to relieve her pain. Hmm. Despite her illness, Pauline was a happy, compliant child until February 1952 when she entered Christchurch Girls High School. While there, Pauline's parents said she became angry and rebellious, but that very high school was also where Pauline met her soon-to-be BFF, Juliet Hume. And to get into the Hume family, we have to start with Henry Rainsford Hume, born 1908 near Liverpool. Uh, 
He won a scholarship to Manchester Grammar and went to Gonville and Caius College in Cambridge, where he graduated with honors in mathematics in 1929. Henry received his PhD in 1932 before heading to Germany to study under Nobel Prize winner Werner Heisenberg. In 1936, Henry accepted a position as lecturer at the University of Liverpool. Around this time, Henry met 25-year-old Hilda Reevely, Reevely, uh, and the couple were married in 1937. Their first child, Juliet Marion Hume, was born October 28, 1938, in Blackheath, London. Hilda was said to believe that babies need to learn their place and couldn't be fussed over or pandered to. She was described as a bit cold when it came to (laughs) children. (laughs) Uh, When war was declared in September 1939, it became increasingly difficult to find nursing help. So Hilda had to raise the baby on her own, which seems like it was her worst nightmare. Oh, dear. To do so. Uh, Juliet was described as an extremely bright yet mischievous and precocious child. Around the age of two, Juliet suffered severe psychological trauma during the London Blitz. The bombing caused Juliet to have debilitating nightmares for months that continued off and on throughout her entire childhood. On March 22nd, 1944, Hilda gave birth to a son, Jonathan. And while that may seem like positive news for the family, it turned out to be yet another traumatic experience for Juliet, who was just five at the time. Hilda suffered from severe postpartum complications and was whisked away to a hospital in the middle of the night. When Juliet woke up the next morning, her mother and new baby brother were gone. No one really explained things to her. And once they did explain it to her, uh... They, she was told her mother isn't allowed to have any visitors. So it's like, oh, yeah, your mother's gone. You can't see her. And again, she was only five at the time. <clears throat> this is wild. Yeah. Around this time, for reasons I couldn't find out, I, I believe they were work-related, but Henry went to America. Decided to leave uh, Juliet behind. Uh, so he made her go live with distant relatives in northern England. Well, wow. In the winter of 1944, Juliet contracted bronchitis, which turned into pneumonia. That got so bad that a doctor made a house call to see her, and when he left, he said he'd return in the morning to sign the death certificate. Jesus! Which, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but is probably not the way to speak to a parent of a sick child. Well, was he even speaking to a parent, though, or was it her guardian at at the time? Yeah, great call, great call. Uh, Despite the doctor's lack of optimism, Juliet managed to survive. However, the illness caused her to become withdrawn, and soon Juliet spent much of her time stuck in the house. In 1946, Henry was promoted to the Director of Naval Operational Research before becoming a scientific advisor to the Air Ministry. Later that same year, Juliet contracted another case of pneumonia, and a doctor suggested that Juliet should live in a warmer climate, climate, over the winter months in order to help improve her health. So in the spring of 1947, Juliet was sent to live with a family friend named Nancy Sutherland in Barbados. Thing is, I get the concept of moving your child to a warmer place because of their health, but the doctor suggested Juliet be in a warmer climate for the winter months. And yet, Henry and Hilda waited until spring to ship 
Juliet off, and didn't have her return the following f- until the following fall. Is it possible they needed several months to arrange things? Sure, but why not her let why not let her stay with you during the spring and summer, and then send her in the fall when it got colder? I think I'm just mostly annoyed they sent their nine-year-old daughter away in the spring of 1947 and then didn't bother to see her while she was gone, and it was over a year. That's wild. Meanwhile, in 1947, Henry was offered the position of rector, or academic head, at Canterbury College in Christchurch, so the Humes moved to New Zealand. And after 13 months in Barbados, Juliet was sent to New Zealand, but not to be with her family. First, she was sent to the northern tip of North Island, just over 1,300 kilometers or 800 miles from Christchurch. The family didn't fully reunite until October 1948, around which time Juliet became ill yet again and was confined to a sanatorium. At the end of the year, Juliet was sent to Queenswood, a private boarding school in Hastings on the eastern coast of North Island. To get there, Juliet had to take an overnight ferry and then travel by a train for six hours, a trip she made on her own at just 10 years old. Jesus. Juliet was incredibly unhappy there, so her parents allowed her to return home months later. In 1950, Henry moved the family to the Islam Homestead, the official residence of the rector. The property had a massive colonial house. It even had horse paddocks. It was an interesting choice for the family to stay there. Uh, The area was quite damp and foggy throughout the winter months. And Juliet, having a history of respiratory illnesses, it felt like maybe that's not the right place for her. But the Humes felt it was a great place for Hilda to entertain, and they really thought Jonathan would love it. They also referred to Jonathan as Jaunty, and I'll never get over that. It's gross. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's just nice they didn't consider uh, Juliet in this decision at all. No. But, you know. Uh, Juliet spent two years attending the Islam School, which was practically across the road from their house. It was the first time in years Juliet actually enjoyed going to school. Juliet briefly attended St. Mar- Margaret's Col- College Junior School, a private girls' school, three kilometers or 1.8 miles away. It was the 10th school Juliet had attended, and she was just 12 at the time. Wow. The school tested Juliet and found her IQ to be 170, which falls in the ranking of highly gifted. It was suggested that Juliet would benefit from attending a public school due to her IQ, where she could be stimulated by a larger, busier environment. So the Humes enrolled Juliet in Christchurch Girls High School in February 1952, where she met Pauline Riper. Pauline was seen as a misfit and a bit creepy to other kids at school, so when Pauline and Juliet became friends, they were called an unlikely pair, given that they came from vastly different backgrounds. And while that may be true, knowing what I know now, I'm not surprised that Juliet and Pauline became friends. They both suffered pretty intense illnesses throughout their childhoods that caused them to spend long periods of time being isolated from other people. And those illnesses continued into their teen years and prevented them from participating in physical activities at school. So it was the two of them, again, being separated alone. Now they're, well, they were separated alone as children. Now they're being separated alone together. So of course they're going to bond over 
the shared illnesses and the shared yeah. experiences. Uh, when Juliet first met Pauline, she told her mother, quote, I've met someone at last with a will as strong as my own. Pauline and Juliet also shared a love of writing. They started writing stories together and created an incredibly detailed fantasy world in which Pauline was called Gina and Juliet was called Deborah, although from the sounds of it, it was pronounced more Deborah. They created their own religion where music and art were celebrated and the saints worshipped were based on actors and opera singers. It included a parallel dimension called the Fourth World, which would basically, it was their version of heaven. Their dream was to sell their stories to Hollywood and collaborate on projects for the rest of their lives. Pauline and Juliet soon became inseparable, with Pauline spending as much time as possible at the Ilum House. Whenever Pauline wasn't around, Juliet's parents say their daughter became distraught. They started to grow concerned about the closeness that Pauline and Juliet shared. During sleepovers, the girls would share a bed. They often took baths together. So all four parents started to worry the girls might be engaging in some sort of sexual relationship. And remember, this is back in the 50s, living outside of society's norm when it came to gender or sexuality was seen as a serious mental illness at the time. Thankfully, we have come a lot further than that. We have a long way to go, but... At least it's not considered uh, a serious mental illness or a crime anymore because it was yes. also a crime at the time. Yeah. Uh, it was never officially confirmed whether Pauline and Juliet were lesbians or not, nor is it our business if they don't want it shared publicly. But later in life, Juliet did say there was nothing sexual about their friendship. In May 1953, Juliet was diagnosed with tuberculosis and had to be admitted to Kashmir Sanitarium. She was just 14 at the time. She remained there for 112 days without a single visit from her family. Wow. Because you see, Henry and Hilda planned a trip to England and the United States, and the plan was to leave in May and return in August. And then when Juliet gets got sick, it apparently just made sense for her to stay behind and for everyone else to just go without her. <laughs> When the Humes arrived home, they found Juliet to be a bit withdrawn. What a shock! I know, I know. She told her family she felt abandoned and that her friendship with Pauline was the only thing that mattered to her. Mm -hmm. Pauline, who visited Juliet every week while she was in the hospital, also wrote letters to Juliet in their fantasy world, where this time they called themselves Charles and Lance. Also... They call, their, their names change often so many times throughout this. I'm sticking with Pauline and Juliet just for the sake of, you know. Keeping it clear. Keeping it. Thank you. Uh, while Juliet was away, Pauline acted out. For the sake of an income, the Riper family took in borders. And in July 1953, Pauline was caught in bed with a law student named John Nicholas Bolton who had been boarding at the house. Bert kicked Nicholas out and forbid Pauline from ever seeing him again. Pauline, of course, met up with him um, several times over the next few months, during which time Pauline developed what would be recognized today as bulimia. Right. Juliet was released nine days after her parents returned from New Zealand, 
or return to New Zealand, rather, to punish them for abandoning her, Juliet threw tantrums and became incredibly hostile towards them, which only made her friendship with Pauline that much stronger. And maybe it was the stress of things that were happening with Juliet, but her mother, Hilda, started an affair. Didn't see that coming. Yep. Walter Andrew Bowman Perry, known as Bill. (laughs) Don't know why. Bill was not any of the words I said, but Bill, an engineer born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Hello. He got a job with a London consulting firm, which had been retained to advise Booth and McDonald, a New Zealand company that manufactured agriculture implements. Bill was asked to go to New Zealand, so he flew while his wife decided to sail on a ship. However, during the trip... Bill's wife fell in love with the ship's purser, and she left Bill and started a new life with the man in Australia. (laughs) Okay. It just keeps, I mean, you're you're like, oh, this is zagging. No, it zigs. It zigs and zags. You know, it just feels like the 50s was a simpler time, but in some ways, so much more complicated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Uh, Shortly after Bill arrived in July 1953, he went to the Christchurch Marriage Guidance Council, where he met Hilda Hume. The two fell in love and started an affair. And while I don't condone cheating, I assume there were already problems in the Hume's marriage if Hilda and Bill met at a place for marriage counseling. Right. Uh, And the thing is, it turns out not only did Henry know about Hilda and Bill's relationship, he also must have approved Because in December 1953, Bill moved into a semi-private apartment at the back of the Islam estate. It even included a private housekeeper. And to be clear, it wasn't a separate house. It was a separate apartment in the same house. That's interesting. Yep. And while Henry knew about the relationship, it seems that Juliet didn't know On Easter in 1954, Juliet caught Bill and Hilda in bed together, which apparently happened just three days before Henry would tell his kids that he and Hilda were getting a divorce, and just two months before the death of Nora Riper. Could it all be connected? You'll have to wait until after the break to find out. Well, 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 you heard the lady, lots of intrigue, lots more to come. So grab another drink, hit the can, and we'll be back with more on the Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. 
Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the case of Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume. Before the break, Christy was outlining just how two (laughs) children could potentially have childhoods that lead them to killing. I already have taken lots of notes through my psychologist hat lens of what happens next. Uh, Well, apparently what happens on the break is that people who shall remain nameless go for a simple pee and uh, refresh the drink. And they decide the pee is important. So they're going to do that first. And they do only to discover that one of their children, who's now innocently sleeping, isn't that convenient, um has plugged the toilet. So I had to deal with an overflow. Uh, So the point is, I have come back with a Mike's Hard Red Freeze because that's what was in my fridge. Hell to the yes, baby. Well, guess what? On that note, there she goes. There she is. Let's do this thing. It's just, and I know that this is going to seem one of the more childish things I say. It's just so unfair. (laughs) To deal with it, but it's fine. It's I don't think that's with. childish at all. I think that that's completely it's, fair and relevant. It's dealt with. And when I say one of the children, I know exactly who it is. If you think I don't know my children by their poos, you're wrong. <laughs> it's horrifying. I will Do be. You know, if you saw poo on the floor, would you know which of your dogs did it? Mm-hmm. There you go. We all poo different. <laughs> we all poo different. <laughs> Baboon poo. <laughs> I. Uh, like that was oh god yeah baboon was fully sober um we all poo different uh was a sip so yep oh boy yep um oh god please don't let this lead to people tagging us in articles where it's like your poo is as i as different (laughs) as your fingerprint or something oh god uh, anyhow, oh. I'm just writing down, we all poo different. We know that that's going to happen. <laughs> it's it's amazing that it, off the rails this far, like this far into the show. Usually it's a little further in, but. I love that for us and I love that for the listeners. You know what I mean? Oh, I guarantee at this rate, they're going to be like, yes, more of more of this poo energy. <laughs> You know, I always know when I'm unhinged, but it's rare that you're my kind of unhinged, and it is happening tonight. So I got to check the moon cycle. I don't know if that's what's going on, but... Oh, well, you'll love this. To crack that case, which this is just a pain for the people who skip the stuff at the beginning and are like, again? But this will be very brief. I think I'm just frazzled. I've done a lot of episodes in a very small span of time. You have. I've been really trying to crank them out. Um, cause I had to, and then it just became a thing. But, uh, so I think my mind slowly was breaking and I had a little time before this record. So I was like, I have some Lego sets waiting. Like I got some for my birthday and then for Christmas that I haven't had time to open cause they're quite large sets and would take several hours. So I'm like, I've got some time. I'll get started on one now. And I got started on one and I'm going to tell you, I, I didn't have time to finish. So I've put it away and I'm like, I'll finish it off tomorrow. I've gotten to a part that the 
instructions are so complicated. I'm like, I don't think I'm doing this right. Like it's, it's something I've never seen before. And it's claiming like there's arrows and they're like, well, you push it here. And I'm like, but, but pushing it, but it doesn't fit. Like, and so you're like, oh, well, obviously you've done something wrong. Uh, I double checked and triple checked, and my next move is going to be to pout over it tomorrow until my husband helps me, <laughs> or be an be an adult and ask for help. But the point is, I think that unraveled me. Yeah, because well, I putting guess... Lego together is a very calming thing for me, and a very fun thing. Whereas this just stressed me out. I was going to say it sucks when the thing that you did to relax stressed you out. That sucks. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate, and I think I learned the lesson of. Dig out the SNES and dig out the Paperboy 2. Get back into that. Go see back. what you can do. Go back to your roots. Uh, what I wouldn't give for Nintendo, if you're listening, <laughs> they're not. Um, for the love of God, put some of the classic NES games on the Switch. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, my husband has a game that's classic Sega games. Like, classic, like a whole bunch of Sega games in one Switch game. And I'm yeah. like, why can't you do that for for NES? And for the love of God, put Paperboy on it. That's yeah. all I'm asking. And I would also like uh, Yoshi's Woolly World to be put onto the Switch. If you could. I love it so much. Maybe I'll just start the crafted world again. Christy, now's not the time. Get back to the case. Great point. <laughs> so, uh, where were we? Oh, baboon. That's where she is. <laughs> That's where she is. Anyhow. So after the police were called on June 22nd, 1954, Henry Hume picked Juliet and Pauline up from Victoria Park at 4.15 p.m. Bill Perry, who lived in an apartment at the back of the house, arrived at the Hume's main house just before Henry. Hilda had the girls take a bath. Then she gave them each a sedative and put them to bed. Oh, my God. Pauline's left coat sleeve had blood soaked six inches up from the cuff. Bill quickly took the coat, as well as the girl's clothes, to the dry cleaner on the corner of Clyde and Fendleton Roads, as it was set to close at 5 p.m. Bill claims the girls didn't know he had taken the clothes, and he only did so as he felt the sight of the bloody clothing would be upsetting to the girls. When the police arrived at Victoria Park, they discovered that Nora Riper was dead. She was just 46 at the time of her death. Detective Sergeant Tate said, quote, The deceased had been attacked with an animal ferocity seldom seen in the most brutal murders. Wow. According to the pathologist, there were 45 injuries, or sorry, 45 external injuries including 24 lacerations to the face and scalp that penetrated down to the bone. Jesus. Nora's lower denture was buried in the dirt to the left of her head. There were marks around Nora's neck that indicated she was held down by her throat while she was being hit in the head. There were defensive wounds to Nora's hands that were so brutal that the tip of the little finger of her left hand was hanging on by a piece of skin. Jesus. I well, I did put it in the disclaimer. Oh, no, I know. I, I'm just, yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. just reacting. Like, I'm like, that's crazy. My point is, that's why. That's why I did Yeah, fair uh, enough. Nora, Nora's stockings were covered in mud, and her right shoe was off. 
Her hat and gloves were trampled, and there was a brooch squished beneath her left leg. Near Nora's body, police found a handbag, a cardigan, and a stocking, which was knotted at the ankle. The stocking was also covered in blood and had a hole in the toe. Inside the stocking was half of a brick. Police called the Hume household at 7.30 p.m. to say there would be an investigation into Nora's death. After the call, Hilda went upstairs and gathered up everything that Juliet had ever written. Letters that even letters that were in the house from Pauline, uh, all of the scrapbooks, exercise books, two novels that Juliet had, Juliet had written, and a diary. She took them all, shoved them in a suitcase, and hid it. Police called a second time to say that they were on their way to interview Pauline and Juliet. According to Pauline's interview, Pauline, Juliet, and Nora walked down a path almost to the bottom of the hill before they turned back. Juliet walked about six feet ahead, and Nora was at the back. Pauline said Nora slipped, twisted sideways, and fell, hitting her head repeatedly on rocks and stones. She claimed that Nora convulsed, and she tried to restrain her, but couldn't. The girls then tried to pick Nora up, but they dropped her. Pauline said she knew her mother was dead because of the amount of blood. When asked about stockings, Pauline said, quote, I had a stocking with me. I usually carry an old one in my bag. I used an old one to wipe up the blood. Yeah. To the best of my knowledge, that just wiping up the blood stocking was never found. But I if it even it existed exist. at all. Yep. Uh, Juliet's interview was nearly identical to Pauline's. The interviewing officer stated that based on the injuries, they suspected that Nora's death was a homicide. Juliet then agreed to tell the truth. She said after tea, they walked down a track on the side of a hill. Juliet was walking ahead when she found a pink stone on the ground. Juliet spent several minutes looking for the ring that the stone came from when she heard someone call out. She called back to say she was coming, and when she went back to where Nora and Pauline were, Juliet saw that Nora was unconscious, lying on the ground covered in blood. Pauline was hysterical and had Nora's head in her lap. Pauline told Juliet her mother had slipped, and Juliet said she believed her. After Juliet's interview, police decided to do a second interview with Pauline. The officer told her they suspected she murdered her mother. During the interview, Pauline was no longer the grief-stricken girl she was the first time during the interview. Uh, she was outright asked if she killed her mother, and Pauline responded, quote, If you don't mind, I won't answer that. She was then asked, quote, How often did you hit her? And Pauline said, and I quote, I don't know, a great many times, I should imagine. Interesting. She she also admitted that the brick found at the scene was taken from her house and she had carried it in her bag. Wow, okay. On June 24th, Pauline Riper and Juliet Hume were officially arrested for the murder of Nora Riper. Leading up to the trial, a shocking discovery was made about Nora and Bert Riper. The couple, who had been living together for 23 years, were not, as they had claimed, legally married. And the reason they weren't is because Bert was legally married to someone else. Wow. Yep. 
As mentioned earlier, Herbert Detlev Riper, or Bert, was born in 1893 in Tasmania. At 16, he moved to New Zealand, where he enlisted as a private in the New Zealand Expeditionary Force two years later. Bert was deployed to Cairo in December 1915, where he met Louisa MacArthur. At the time, Bert was 21. Louisa was 34. Which is interesting because you don't normally see it go that way. Mm -hmm. A year later, Bert and Louisa were married before returning to New Zealand and settling in Hawke's Bay, North Island, before moving to Fielding. Bert said Louisa made his life a living hell, and one night he woke up to find Louisa had put a strap around his neck and was trying to strangle him. Bert said that he found a razor under their mattress. Soon after, he started sleeping in a separate bedroom, and Louisa broke the panels of the door to try and get in. Bert decided to leave her, but when he got into his car, Louisa smashed the car windows with a broom before lying in front of the vehicle so Bert couldn't drive it away. Bert then walked to his nearby office, where he planned to end his own life. Once at the office, Bert was calmed down by Nora, his secretary, who suggested they go away together. The couple went to South Island and began living as husband and wife. Louisa refused to give Bert a divorce, and... He said he had been paying maintenance to her ever since. Maintenance, basically like an alimony in North America. Right. Bert, Bert also added that at the time of the trial, Louisa was dying of cancer. Interesting. However, it turns out that parts of Bert's story weren't exactly truthful. Bert said he lived in Fielding. He didn't. He lived in Raiatihi which is about 157 kilometers or 97 miles away from Fielding. Bert also claimed in his story he had his own accounting firm. He did not. He was not a public accountant. He was someone who looked after ledgers, which I think is like a level down. Nora worked at the same office, but wasn't his secretary because he was on low enough level he didn't get a secretary. Bert also claimed that he and Louisa had no children. However... They welcomed a son, Kenneth Roy Riper, on July 17, 1919, and a second son, Andre Lewis Riper, on November 1, 1924. And if Bert lied about that, what else would he lie about? How about the fact that Louise, Louisa was not dying of cancer? Oh, and that Bert had not been paying maintenance to her or their children since he abandoned them all those years before. Whoa! In July 1931, Bert abandoned his family, bought Nora a wedding ring, and the couple secretly moved to Christchurch. But in September of that year, Bert was arrested for failing to maintain his wife and children. There is no record of Bert doing any time, so it's possible that at the time of his arrest, he had enough money to cover the amount that he owed Louisa. In July 1934, Bert and Nora bought a house, but this time they registered the property to Honora Mary Riper, wife of Herbert Riper, accountant. So many lies in there. Uh, but putting the house under Nora's name meant the courts were unable to track Bert down for that pesky overdue maintenance for his family. So since there was no legal marriage, it was decided that Nora would be referred to as Nora Parker, as that was her legal name, and Pauline would be <laughs> Pauline Parker throughout the trial. Pauline was said to be genuinely astonished 
to learn that her surname wasn't Riper. The only person besides Bert and Nora who knew the truth was Nora's mother, Amy. While awaiting trial, Pauline and Juliet were kept at Christchurch Prison in the women's section away from all other prisoners. A witness said the girls were, quote, very happy together and seemed completely unconcerned at the seriousness of their position. Juliet's mother asked to have a private conversation with her daughter before the trial, but Juliet refused. Not really surprised. Nope. There, Hilda, not at all. Uh, The trial started August 23rd, 1954, and lasted six days. The girls smiled and waved at the crowd out the window of the courthouse, which became such a distraction that the windows had to be covered with newspaper. Witnesses said that Pauline and Juliet spent most of the trial whispering and giggling to each other. The defense counsel said the only option for defense was insanity. If the girls were found not guilty by reason of insanity, they would have been likely incarcerated indefinitely in a psychiatric hospital. And the defense pushed the narratives of the girls' questionable relationship to try and prove insanity. During sleepovers, they often shared a bed. They often had baths together. Uh, Based on a diary found in Pauline's room, Apparently, the girls spoke very openly about very incredibly sexual things with each other. A doctor testified to say their relationship was unhealthy and that if the girls were lesbians, it would explain any paranoia or delusional thoughts that might have led to the murder. As I mentioned earlier, the Hume and Riper families did have concerns that Pauline and Juliet were in a sexual relationship, which was a criminal act in New Zealand at the time. The most common treatment for it was a prefrontal lobotomy. Oh, Jesus. Again, thankfully, thankfully we have progressed beyond that. Um, Long way to go, but uh, while the defense tried to blame insanity, the court turned down the idea, saying that the girls had had been found sane enough to stand trial, so you can't turn around and use insanity as your defense. So the defense's case was weak, and during the trial it was suggested that Nora's death stemmed from Juliet catching her mother in bed with Bill. It was also said that Juliet tried to blackmail Bill over it. However, we know that Juliet's father knew about the affair, so there didn't seem like much of a point in blackmailing him at all. And why would an incident with Juliet's mother lead to the murder of Pauline's mother? Yeah. Likely it didn't. So... Then what was the girl's motive for killing Nora? Because up to this point, I mean, it would have made more sense if Hilda had been the target based on some of the things that had gone on. Yeah. Saying she would have deserved it. I'm just saying it would have seemed more likely. Yeah. So in January 1954, prior to when the murder happened... The board at Canterbury College announced that they had lost faith in Henry Hume as their rector after he disclosed a private board report to some members of the college council. This lack of faith could have also stemmed from the social pressure and gossip that surrounded Hilda's affair. Henry agreed to resign, so the Hume family needed a plan. Henry wanted to return to England. He said he would go and look for a new job while Hilda, Juliet, and Jonathan would remain in New Zealand. 
Henry asked Canterbury College if he could move the resignation to July, and the plan was for Juliet and Henry to leave Christchurch on July 3rd. But then they learned that Juliet and Pauline were concocting a plan of their own. With their love of writing, the girls had dreams <coughs> Ooh, sorry, of getting their books published and having their stories be turned into movies. So their main plan was to get to Hollywood. They said that they would sail to Hawaii, live there until they earned enough money to sail to California. The Humes didn't want Juliet running off to America, so they altered their plan a bit and decided Henry would go to England, Hilda and Jonathan would remain in New Zealand, and Juliet would go stay with Henry's sister Ina, who ran a girls' boarding school in South Africa. This is... I can't... Yep. The girls eventually got wind of that plan, and they even seemed to realize that the cost of traveling to America might not be possible for them, so the girls agreed that Juliet would go to South Africa, but only if Pauline would go with her. After some time spent there, the girls would then move to England to live with her father Henry. Once in England, they would each write an opera that could, quote, easily be staged at Covent Garden, which is an in an area in London's uh, West End. Once they got their operas made, that would automatically lead to the girls producing their own films. And the idea that they truly believed that a writing career would essentially just fall into their laps is a great reminder of just how young these girls were Yeah, at the time. Also, I mean, how many women were openly given the opportunity to produce movies in the 50s? Oh, yeah, that's... I mean, again, a reminder, they were 15. Yeah. I mean, at 15, I thought Leonardo DiCaprio was going to get sick of Hollywood and decide he's going to go to Saskatchewan and find himself a bride. So the point is, (laughs) that's where I was at at 15. Yeah. So... Oh, God, I really believed it. I get it. It's fine. It's fine. We we are who we are. So it's not surprising that the girls would want big careers and dream of it. But more than anything, Pauline and Juliet's main goal was just to stay together and work together for the rest of their lives. Mainly, probably because that was the only person in their life who never let them down. Yeah. But, you know. I'm sure we'll get into that later. But when Pauline suggested to her parents that she was going to live with Juliet in South Africa, her parents refused, mainly because the families were working on splitting the girls up because they feared their relationship had crossed a line and become unhealthy. Pauline and Juliet had become obsessed with each other to the point where they became withdrawn and even physically ill when separated. So Henry and Hilda worked out the plan to get Juliet out of the country, suggesting she go live in South Africa for the sake of her respiratory health. Henry and Hilda even told the kids that the reason for the change was because Henry and Hilda were getting a divorce. Since Juliet caught Hilda in bed with Bill, the divorce can't have been a big surprise to her. But if Juliet's parents were to blame for her upcoming separation from Pauline, again... Why was Pauline's mother targeted? 
Well, the answer seemed to come from Pauline's personal diary. While Hilda Hume did her best to hide all of Juliet's writings before the first police interview, police were able to find Pauline's diary, and the entries were damning, to say the least. Pauline had written numerous disagreements that she had with her mother over the years, such as, quote, Mother and I had a long, loud disagreement, and I got absolute hell from her. She went into the usual and brought up a new series of threats. One day she will carry out all her dire threatening, and she will be left without a leg to stand on. As I mentioned earlier, in 1953, Pauline started to suffer from bulimia, and Nora was trying to find ways to get Pauline to gain weight. At first, Nora said that Pauline couldn't see her somewhat boyfriend, Nicholas, who she was caught in bed with that one time. Uh, she couldn't see him again, or she would only see him again if she was good and started eating better. But when Pauline was good and started eating better, Nora changed her mind and refused to let Pauline see Nicholas. So, of course, Pauline's eating only got worse. So Nora then threatened to never let Pauline see Juliet again. And I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back. On April 25th, the, the day the girls were told, first told about Henry and Hilda's divorce, Pauline wrote in her diary, quote, Juliet and I are sticking together through everything. We sink or swim together. Adding fuel to the fire was the fact that at the time, Nora had been pushing Pauline to get a job as she was the only member of the household not contributing financially. Bert had the fish shop, Nora took in boarders, and Wendy worked at the lingerie counter. It was also said Pauline had attempted to find work, but it had been a real struggle for her. The entries in Pauline's diary took a turn on April 28th when she wrote, quote, Why could mother not die? Dozens of people are dying all the time. Thousands. Anger against my against mother boiled up inside me as, as it is she who is one of the main obstacles in my path. Suddenly a means of ridding myself of this obstacle occurred to me. If she were to die. Pauline even added an entry stating that she told Juliet that she believed that Nora should die. And she said that Juliet was, quote, worried but does not disagree violently. <laughs> According to Pauline's diary, the girls planned Nora's murder for seven weeks, deciding that it should either look like a natural death or an accident. They would take Nora to Victoria Park, where Juliet would walk ahead, drop a pink stone on the track, and point it out to Nora. While Nora bent down to look at the stone, Pauline would take a sandbag out of her purse and hit Nora over the head before pushing her off the track to make it seem as though Nora had fallen. On June 19th, Pauline wrote that they had worked out a plan, stating, quote, Our main idea for the day was to murder Mother. This notion is not a new one, but this time it is a definite plan which we intend to carry out. We have worked it out carefully and are both thrilled by the idea Naturally, we are a trifle nervous, but the pleasure of anticipation is great. I shall not write this plan down as I shall write it up when we carry it out. I hope. A lot of positive speak in there for yeah. talking about murder. But two days later, she added, quote, 
We decided to use a rock in a stocking rather than a sandbag. We discussed the murder. I feel keyed up as if I'm planning a surprise party. Wow. On the morning of June 21st, the day before the murder, Pauline wrote, quote, I rose late and helped mother vigorously this morning. Deborah rang, Deborah being Juliet, uh, and we decided to use a rock instead, which she had already stated, but neither right. were there. I assume they changed from a sandbag to a half brick because of the weight of the item. Uh, Juliet got the half brick from a brick pile beside the garage at her Ilum home. Juliet wrapped the brick in newspaper and put it in her shoulder bag, which is interesting because when police interviewed them and they finally admitted to doing it, Pauline was the one who said she got the brick from her house. Wow. Yeah. On the day of the murder, Pauline wrote, quote, I am writing a little of this up on the morning before the death. I feel very excited. And the night before Christmas-ish last night. She also titled that entry, quote, The Day of the Happy Event. Juliet's mother, Hilda, later described Juliet as radiantly happy that day when she left for Pauline's house. During the trial, both Pauline and Juliet eventually did full admit to the murder. They said while walking in Victoria Park, as per their plan, Juliet walked ahead and dropped a pink stone on the track. Juliet then called Nora and Pauline over, and when Nora bent down to look at the stone, Pauline hit Nora in the head with the half brick as hard as she could. Juliet grabbed the stocking and continued to hit Nora. By the time the stocking ripped, Nora was lying on her back, making a terrible noise. Juliet kneeled next to the body and put her hands on Nora's throat and held Nora against the ground while Pauline continued to hit Nora in the head with the brick. After, deliber after deliberating for two and a half hours, the jury found Pauline and Juliet both guilty. After the verdict was delivered, a newspaper reporter claimed that, quote, Parker looked across at Hume, whispered something, and they both smiled. Since Pauline and Juliet were both minors, they were not considered eligible for the death penalty, so they were sentenced to life in prison. The entire case completely outraged the public. The idea that two 15-year-old girls could plan and execute such a horrific murder was shocking, as was the fact that the girls didn't seem to show any signs of remorse and that they were being kept together in prison. To appease the public, Pauline was kept in the prison in Christchurch, and Juliet was sent to a prison in Auckland, more than a thousand kilometers, or 665 miles away. The girls were also told that in the future, when they were released, they would not be permitted to be in contact with each other ever again, which they believed would be the worst possible punishment that Pauline and Juliet could ever receive. So what happened to everyone in this story after the trial? Starting with Juliet's family, Henry Hume and his son Jonathan left New Zealand on July 3rd, as he had originally planned, before the trial. He gave a statement to the press denouncing his daughter and saying that his number one priority in that moment was his son. <sighs> 
Oh, boy. Okay. Yep. Henry and Jonathan ended up in Marseille before heading to England. Henry and Hilda legally divorced in March 1955, and soon after, Henry married the twice-divorced Marjorie Alice Ducker. After returning to England, Henry accepted a position at the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment, where he worked his way up from a scientist to director of nuclear research. In January 1956, he wrote a paper on green granite, a three-stage nuclear bomb stating, quote, we are confident that the bomb is a three-stage one in which the first bomb is imploded by ordinary explosive and the second by energy from the first bomb, the thermonuclear material, which constitutes the third stage, is ignited by energy and neutrons from the second bomb. We shall refer to the three components as Tom, Dick, and Harry. I know. How clever. To this day, Henry Hume is considered one of the four major minds behind the successful British hydrogen bomb project. He died in January 1991 at the age of 82. His wife, Marjorie, died in 1990. When Henry left New Zealand, Hilda and Bill were evicted from the Islam property. They auctioned off their possessions to raise money for a defense lawyer and eventually moved to the Hume's holiday home in Port Levy. Proving it was more than a fling, Bill stood by Hilda throughout that entire trial. He testified on Juliet's behalf and was photographed standing next to Hilda supporting her. After the trial, Bill and Hilda left for the UK with Hilda using the name H. Marion Perry. After her divorce from Henry, Hilda and Bill were legally married. Bill died in September 1984 at the age of 75, and Hilda died in January 2004 at the age of 91. Bert Riper, who didn't attend the trial at all, uh, although there was a day he was there, but it's because he was supposed to testify, he struggled financially following the trial. After Nora's murder, few boarders were willing to stay at that house. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So not only, yeah, right. Uh, so not only did the family lose a large portion of their income, Bert also had to deal with massive legal fees. In 1957, a judge waived the outstanding balance on those fees after learning that the legal costs were causing Bert and his daughter's hardship. Years later, after the trial, Bert's now adult sons reached out to him. One had become a mechanic and one had become an accountant. Because of this reunion, Bert also got to meet his grandchildren. I, I'm i amazed that those kids wanted to reach out. Yeah. When he left them and spent years acting like they didn't exist. Yeah. Bert Riper died in May 1980 at the age of 86. His ex-wife, Louisa, died in January 1975. There is no word on what happened to Pauline's sister, Wendy. From what I can tell, Wendy still lives in New Zealand, and she is the mother to at least one, if not multiple, sons. When asked about her relationship with Pauline, Wendy said, quote, I had to decide if I would hate her for the rest of my life because she took my mother away from me. It was the worst thing that could ever happen to me because we'd been so close growing up. I wrote to her and said, I can't believe what's happened. I don't accept this. Pauline wrote back to say it got out of hand, but she wanted to stay in touch with her sister. 
Over the years, Wendy and Pauline stayed in contact through letters. Wendy said, quote, I loved her and she still loves me. I accept what happened in our lives was an absolute mistake. And now that we know about the girls' families, what about Juliet and Pauline? Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, the public decided that Juliet Hume was the ringleader behind Nora's murder. So she was given the harsher sentence of the two. Juliet was transferred to Mount Eden Prison Facility in Auckland. The high-security facility was described as, quote, medieval in construction and atmosphere. It was also the site of capital punishment, so there were several hangings that took place during Juliet's time there. Due to her notoriety, Juliet was placed in solitary confinement for the first three months of her sentence. Juliet took advanced level classes in English, Latin, and math, and even passed her university entrance exam. Throughout her studies, she was was tutored uh, by former colleagues of her father's. Juliet's mail was screened and censored, although she did receive very few letters from her family. Once she was permitted visitors, um, some family friends came, some former classmates, but Juliet's family chose to not visit her at all. At one point, Juliet was given certain privileges, including day trips out of the prison and dinner with the warden and his family. Juliet was later transferred to a prison in Wellington, where she was quietly released in 1959, shortly after her 21st birthday. I want to remind you, they were given life sentences, and they spent five years. Wow. Yeah. A public announcement about Juliet's release was made two weeks after her actual release. Juliet was told as part of the terms of her release, she could leave the country if she wanted, but she could never again have contact with Pauline Parker If Juliet did contact Pauline, Juliet could be sent back to prison. After her release, uh, Juliet was given the chance to take on an anonymous identity. So Juliet Hume became Anne Perry. Again, I've said it before, they had multiple names, sparing any confusion. I'm just going to keep referring to her as Juliet. Mm Mm-hmm. Shortly after leaving prison, Juliet left New Zealand, making a stop in Sydney, Australia, before heading to the UK. She lived with her mother and stepfather for several years and tried to make her fiction writing dream a reality. But when the writing didn't take off, Juliet did various jobs, including flight attendant on domestic UK flights, retail sales, and clerical work. In 1967, Juliet was granted a visa to live and work in the United States. Immigration even reviewed the transcripts from the trial before approving her application. Yep. Juliet was introduced to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and became a Mormon. She made full disclosure with the church about her background and was welcomed with open arms. Juliet initially lived in San Francisco before making her way to Los Angeles. She spent her evenings writing while working various jobs during the day, such as insurance underwriter and limousine dispatcher. When Juliet still hadn't sold any books by the early 1970s, she moved back to the UK, where she seemingly reconciled with her father, Henry. Juliet spent some time in England before moving to Scotland. 
Around this time, Juliet started writing mysteries sent, set in Victorian London. After her stepfather, Bill, asked her who, he, who she thought Jack the Ripper might have been. Later in life, Juliet said that she was, quote, totally absorbed by what happens to people under pressure of investigation, how old relationships and trust eroded, and how new ones formed. Which I find interesting coming from a person who knows firsthand what it's like to be investigated. I'm also interested in the wording of old relationships eroded, especially because Juliet had a very close friendship that came to an end very publicly. In 1979, the Cater Street Hangman became the first Anne Perry book to be published. It wasn't exactly a commercial success, but it did fairly well in America. Then in 1994, director Peter Jackson released a movie called Heavenly Creatures, which was based on the case surrounding Nora's murder. Kate Winslet plays Juliet, and Melanie Linsky plays Pauline. And I have to say, shout out to Kate and Melanie. We love you both. Talk about a powerhouse duo. Yeah, for I'll real. say that. <clears throat> uh, now, fair warning to those who have never seen it, uh, but Heavenly Creatures is quite graphic regarding the murder scene, which was done on purpose to show the viewer just how hard it is to kill someone with a brick. The case was also the inspiration for the 1971 French drama don't deliver us from evil, as well as a radio play which de debuted on BBC Radio 4 in September 2018. But before Heavenly Creatures came out, no one knew Juliet's real identity. And of course, once reporters heard the movie was based on a true story, they tried to track down Juliet and Pauline. One particular reporter discovered Juliet Hume was now living as a murder mystery novelist, Anne Perry. And once an article about her was published, Juliet got a massive boost in sales. Prior to the article in August 1994, Juliet had sold about 3 million copies in America of her book. Or books, I should say. By March 2006, she'd sold over 20 million worldwide. Wow. Also prior to the article's release, Juliet's biography listed her father as William Perry, a.k.a. Bill. Once the truth was revealed, Bill Perry was then listed as her stepfather in her biography. It also shouldn't come as a surprise that on Juliet's website, her biography completely skips over her teen years mm, mm -hmm. in any way mm -hmm. and mentions nothing of the crime. When interviewed about Nora's murder, Juliet said she made peace with what had what she had done, quote, a long time ago, yes, admit you're wrong, say you're sorry, and then move on from there. And look, I get that Juliet and Pauline were very young when the crime occurred, and that people can grow and change a lot throughout their lives. But just say you're sorry and move on feels so flippant to me when you're talking about a brutal murder. It's more the sort of thing you'd say after, I don't know, a theft or damaging some property. Juliet was asked if she would ever write about the crime, given that she is a published author. She responded, quote, I don't think I have the right to write about other people's lives. I'm so tired of it anyway. I wish it would go away. 
In 2017, Juliet moved from Scotland to California so she could help promote any movies based on her novels. <laughs> According to the Anne Perry website, Juliet has sold over 26 million copies worldwide. In 2000, she won the Edgar Award for her short story, Heroes. As for Pauline, in 1959, Pauline was released from prison under the supervision of the Department of Justice. She changed her name to Hillary Nathan, and in 1963, graduated from Auckland University with a, with a Bachelor of Arts degree. As a devout Roman Catholic, Pauline entered a convent to become a nun, but she soon left after. She spent a year in Wellington working at the New Zealand Library School. In 1965, Pauline moved back to Auckland in... Oh, yeah. I already said 1965. I don't know why I was going to say it again. Uh, she worked as a librarian at the Auckland University. By 1992, Pauline had moved to the UK, where she taught riding lessons to kids. Unlike Juliet, Pauline has never spoken to the press. In 1996, her sister Wendy spoke publicly on Pauline's behalf, saying, quote, Pauline committed the most terrible crime and has spent 40 years repaying it by keeping away from people and doing her own little thing. After it happened, she was very sorry about it. It took her about five years to realize what she had done. When Wendy was asked what Pauline thought about Juliet's career, Wendy said, quote, She is a devout Roman Catholic and spends much of her time in prayer. She hasn't got a TV or radio, so would never have heard what Anne Perry had to say and wouldn't care. Pauline lived a very secluded life until the article came out about heavenly creatures. After that, everyone knew her name, and now people knew where she lived. So in 1997, Pauline decided to sell her cottage in the village of Who and move to Kent, about 25 kilometers or 16 miles south, to avoid further media attention. So she puts her house up for sale. And prospective buyer Andrew Aris and his wife went to see the house. Not just they were looking for a house. They weren't looking because they knew who she was or right, anything. Right, right. They described the house as, quote, completely covered by ivy. No part of the brickwork could be seen. To the side of the house were many homemade stables and outbuildings. It was quite a mess, to say the least. Allegedly, the sale was finalized on the very day that Heavenly Creatures was set to air on TV across Britain, and Pauline just wanted to be out of the area. But the interesting thing about the house was there was a very large mural covering an entire wall in a bedroom upstairs, a mural that was allegedly painted by Pauline herself. I will post a picture of the mur mural on our socials, on Instagram and Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails, and on Twitter at Not Detectives. But just know, the mural um, is a psychologist hat's dream. The mural consists of about 20 smaller panels, which include goddess-like figures who are glowing and surrounded by glitter, as well as one panel featuring a bird or fairy-type creature trapped in a cage, and another panel where that creature is freed from the cage. Author Peter Graham believes the figures represent Pauline and Juliet. And while the Juliet figures 
are always depicted as goddesses, happy, glowing, the Pauline figures are always sad and longing. There are also numerous panels that involve some sort of separation, including one where the Pauline figure is trying to prevent the Juliet figure from flying away on a winged horse. Also, um, of the two, one is always brunette and one is always blonde, which is uh, what Pauline and Juliet were. Right. Uh, multiple panels feature scenes of death. There's one where it's like she's sitting, leaning against a tree and has something wrapped around her neck. Um, and if this all isn't unsettling enough, there is one panel in particular that features the Pauline and Juliet figures standing together engulfed in flames. The figures, which are blonde and brunette, are both wearing masks and aside from necklaces, both appear to be naked. Assuming that Pauline did paint the mural, it's clear she never got over the gut-wrenching feeling of being separated from Juliet. And honestly, it's heartbreaking, and I do have compassion for what her life has likely been since she was released. Um, I mean, I can still see those pictures in my mind and... Uh, something else I forgot to write down, but something I had read, um, the picture of them specifically engulfed in flames, somewhere in Pauline's uh, personal diary, she described their relationship as engulfed in flames. The two of them are engulfed in flames. So I'm not surprised at all that it's something that would be painted. But yeah. like, this this mural is is huge. Um, I find it interesting that between the two women, one became a well-known author who loves the spotlight and willingly gives interviews, and the other chose to spend decades in hiding, preferring not to contact the outside world in any way. Um, I also bet it's incredibly frustrating that the one is basically living the dream that they wanted. Uh, I also find it interesting that the two girls who created their own religion in their teen years, both grew up to be deeply religious women. One is a Mormon, one is a Roman Catholic, but it just feels like, despite having vastly different life experiences outside of prison, both women seem to have used religion to cope with their past. And also, as girls who their entire lives were abandoned and cast aside by everyone they knew, it's not surprising that they would go to something like religion that is known for welcoming people in. Uh, while there was a moment in time when both women lived in Scotland, about 160 kilometers or 100 miles apart, it is believed that Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume have not been in contact with each other since 1954. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails... I'm a baboon. <laughs> <laughs> but you're our baboon. You're damn right. All right. Let's take one more quick break. Grab another drink. Hit the can one more time. And we'll be back with our final thoughts on the Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Oh. <sighs> 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume. I have so many thoughts based on my psychologist hat tendencies. Of course. Um, <clears throat> okay. I think what's interesting is... <sighs> okay, I'm just going to have to start at the beginning because I'm going to go all over the place if I don't. So as soon as you mentioned that Pauline uh, had this bone marrow disorder that required surgeries, eight to nine months in a hospital, the number one thing that popped into my head was Gacy. Because Gacy spent that time in the hospital as a kid too. Sure. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is the reason that either of them went on to kill. I just think it's an important thing uh, to note. Uh, it's interesting, the isolation factor. Yes. Um, Juliet's story, the fact that she experienced the bombing that was happening at the time during the war, it sounds like the nightmares are just like classic PTSD. Yeah. But when you're starting a relationship with PTSD when you're a toddler, when you're two, yeah. I don't know that that's setting you up for great success when we then know all of the things that then happened. Again, waking up and her mother was gone at age five. Like these are really traumatic. Yeah. And then just being sent to a million different places, completely disregarded, um, kind of tossed around. This is, to me, it felt like it was, it was a classic setup for borderline personality disorder, which sure starts in childhood when there is some form of abuse, which I would say that this neglect counts as abuse. Um, also the PTSD. Uh, and it's a way that your brain, like personality disorders, again, now I'm obviously not a trained expert, but I just an enthusiast. Um, personality disorders happen when your brain experiences trauma and your your psyche essentially like breaks in a way to try and protect you from experiencing and feeling the trauma. Um, I think there's also some other things going on that I'll get to when I get to uh, in terms of personality disorders. But it's interesting that they immediately upon meeting and yeah, I agree with you. It makes complete sense that these two would gravitate towards each other. They oh, have yeah. similar um, traumas, for again, for lack of a better term, that I think you could bond over. But the fact that they almost immediately created this fantasy world, that just sparked in my mind Gypsy Rose. Then I was like, that's a whole other mm -hmm. thing. And the fantasy worlds that she had created with her boyfriend at the time, whose name is alleviating me at the moment, but... Um, that's Mommy Dead and Dearest for the documentary of, for people who aren't familiar. Um, 
that was an interesting kind of parallel because, of course, Gypsy Rose was raised by a mother who, in severe Munchausen by proxy, this child was, I mean, if you haven't seen that documentary, you have to watch it immediately. It's horrifying what this mother put her daughter through um, unnecessarily. And so, again, a massive amount of trauma there. It's interesting that she created a fantasy world and that that's what these two girls did as well. Yeah. Again, I'll just and I can't give an official diagnosis, obviously, but I'm just talking about what I what I know. That's what I bring to the table. The specific that Juliet would start throwing tantrums again, that feels like a. I mean, I don't want to say that people who have borderline throw tantrums, quote unquote. I don't think that's necessarily the right terminology to use um, that or excuse me, that I would use in, in discussing that personality disorder. Um, however, th- there are lots of different traits because it comes down to a fear of a, a true fear of abandonment. That is what the the crux of where that typically starts and the way that it manifests as you become an adult is that you gravitate towards people. You hang on way too tight to people. If somebody does something very small, it immediately feels like it is a massive betrayal, a massive abandonment. So for two gals who could potentially both have, and even if they don't have it, have some of those traits, it makes sense that they hung on to each other so hard. Um, And then also would kind of act out towards other people in their lives, mainly their family, obviously. Um, The details of this crime are unbelievable. That's where it kind of, that's where my psychologist hat has a question mark because people with borderline, there's not a connotation that they are known to like commit murders. That's not a symptom of sure. do some sure but it's do do some any type of people commit murders of course it isn't like there's like a massive connection so then it's interesting because it's like then i start to think about the sociopath traits and stuff like that or the narcissistic personality disorder traits and i'm like maybe again my diag- my initial diagnosis is incorrect is there something in these fantasy worlds that they created the fact that they were changing their names the fact that that was such a large part of their story together, is it actually a disassociative personality disorder or some traits of that that are coming into play where, you know, some dissociative disorder identity disorders are are when someone will have multiple personalities. I've talked about this on the show before. Um, sometimes it's just that when you um, go through severe trauma, the way your psyche cracks in those cases is that it creates a fantasy world for you to go to. It creates this other reality to live in because that reality is less stressful than, than the real world. Right. It makes sense. Again, the details though, that start to come out about the parents, the details that, for example, Bert, Pauline's father had lied about what his actual situation was about leaving his original family and all of the above. The fact that we know that Juliet's father was a key person in building an atom bomb, or building the atom bomb, rather. That speaks to a specific type of people that they're getting their genes from, right? So not only in Juliet's case was her mother known to be not super stoked about raising her as a young child, struggled with postpartum, you know, went and was in a facility for some amount of time. 
her father also has a certain personality type. If you're, I, I mean, I personally think it takes a specific personality type to knowingly build an atom bomb, knowing that that's only going to be used for massive destruction and murder. Yeah. Keep right? in mind, I can't, it it never came up anywhere um, what he was like as a father. I'm going to go so far as to say probably not cuddly uh, when the two <laughs> huge moments in her life where she would have needed him when his wife was taken away right. in the middle of the night. And uh, when she was charged with murder, he left the country yeah. on both occasions. Yeah. And only focused on his son. Yeah. Which... Don't bring the patriarchy into this. Well, Henry for fuck. Henry. Um, it's interesting again that all of the plans that that Henry and Hilda had were just about where can we ship Juliet off to next. Like even this plan to move to South Africa yeah. that I love that she was into when she had the idea that she could bring Pauline. It's interesting to me. It's interesting to me. That again, I'm genuinely like, surprised that they didn't just go, great. Yeah. See ya. I know. Um, I mean, what's interesting, too, is that, you know, you talk about they slept in the same bed. They took baths together. I was like, well, it sounds like our childhood. Um, yeah. But uh, obviously not exactly the same, of course. Sure. Um, Again, when it was like their main goal was to stay together and work together their whole lives, I was like, yeah, I get that. Um, yeah. But again, it does feel like this was to another level. The fact that they were so obsessed with each other, they'd be sick without each other. It really did feel like, and I don't know, again, I'm not well-versed enough to know, but I'm curious about like what that is when you put all of that on another person, like which kind of, of um, traits that would align with. Because it does feel like, again, they had that all or nothing, it's you and me, baby. We're going down in a blaze of flames, as we know came into play later. Like, um, And, you know, I think that quite often those relationships that you'll see, again, using Gypsy Rose as an example with her boyfriend, um, who, of course, spoiler alert, they killed her mother. Um, there is sometimes a romantic element, and that doesn't ultimately matter in this case and, and et cetera. Um, and it may not have been a factor. They may have just been best buds. That's also completely possible. And to your point, they did not want it to be discussed. And, you know, we have to honor that anyway. But it is interesting, given the dynamic. Yeah. It made me think of Brokeback Mountain at the end when you were discussing that it was like the way that they had reacted so differently to things. Yeah. And I know that it's a complete stretch, but in a sense, it was just I, the two characters in that movie, you know, it did feel like there's interesting parallels that it's like one kind of went on and did whatever with their life and was public and all of the above. The other kind of went more into isolation, never really getting over that relationship, you know, which regardless of the nature of the relationship, it definitely seems that Pauline did not get over the relationship um, based on the, that mural, if we're to believe that she painted it, which... It would seem odd for it to be there and it not have been hers, given the specifics and whatnot. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm I, just assuming those were all basically pictures from that fantasy world they created. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't be that easy to get. I don't think you can get a U.S. visa now if you have a, a past murder charge. I don't I don't think they'll let you yeah. in. Yeah. 
Just yeah, FYI. Yeah, that's interesting that they um, were okay The one that. thing that stood out to me, and this was fed into my dissociative identity disorder theory, was that Juliet said, as an adult, when asked about would she ever write about the crime, she said she didn't feel right writing about other people's lives. And that stuck out to me because I was like, but it was your life. Yep. But it seems as though she had removed herself from that reality that it was like, well, that's someone else's life. That wasn't me. Fair. You know what I, I mean? Oh, yeah. I kind of took it as like a, because in her mind, well, Pauline killed her own mother. Right. It's not my fault I was there. It could be that. It absolutely could be that. My gut is telling me, again, because she changed her name, it was like, but that's a different life. That's a different person. I'm a different person now. Right. Yeah. Could be wrong. Um, and then the last things that I had to comment on, the religion thing is so interesting because I agree with you that at face value, it makes complete sense that both of them would turn extremely to religion because of the acceptance factor, because of all these kinds of things. But there's also part of me for one, if not both, for Juliet, if not both of them, that I'm like, is it real, though? Or is this, like, Gacy being the guy, you know, that everybody knows in town that you can go to if you need a favor? Is it Ted Bundy sure. working at the suicide hotline? Is it is it that this is a way for them to feel like, is it performative, I guess, was what, what struck me. And I could be completely wrong. I'm just sure. This is what we do at this point on the show. We discuss theories. Of um, course. And it, it, it's, yes, there's a fellowship, of course. And yes, there is that feeling like it's like you can be forgiven and loved and all of the above, which you didn't necessarily get from people at home as kids, of course. Right. But I don't know. There was just something about it that I was like, is it real or is it, again, just a way of trying to make it seem like, see, I'm a good person. I'm religious now. I am this other, or I am this other person who is religious that is who this new person is, right? right? And then the only other thing I thought about that was like, if Pauline was super Roman Catholic, the idea of them being in flames, obviously, and wearing masks, obviously feels very much like hell, the imagery, you know, is there, you know, the Catholic religion, I think I can say fairly safely, is one that operates on things like shame and guilt and all of those kinds of themes. Sure. So... It's interesting that she depicted them wearing masks, that they were wearing masks but naked in the flames as though it was like that's that's them hiding their true selves or something. I don't know. Like the layers sure. to that have got me like I am buzzing. I'm just like I need to see these I need to see these oh, it's things like yeah, I don't know. There's just something about it. I think ultimately at the end of the day when you first said that they were depicting Juliet as the ringleader, I was like, well, that seems that seems not true or whatever. But the way that Pauline has reacted, the way that the two of them have reacted, again, the fact that Juliet seems happy to be in the spotlight, she wants the attention. Then I start to lean towards narcissist, true narcissist, narcissist personality disorder um, sure. as a possibility. And then the fact that Pauline reacted the way she did. And did go more internal, did isolate, but then is drawing those kinds of murals. It does feel like one of those things where it's like, was Juliet really encouraging this? 
based on the fact that, by the way, I I don't believe that that these gals um, had easy childhoods. And that's not me no. suggesting that they deserved to kill anybody. Of course they didn't. But they were a little bit created by their environments. Certainly Juliet's upbringing, I think that is an extremely sure. difficult upbringing. Um, so again, while I don't in any way justify or condone her actions, I can just see how that would be a path. And I could see also how it could be a path into um, that idea of having someone else do it with you, kind of like bringing them along. It's very dark. But again, I, I could see it. That it's like that's a way to for someone to really prove their love. Sure. Right? That it's like the only thing we can do is you need to kill your mother. And then Pauline does it. I mean, they do it together, but is willing to do it. Like, I don't know. Like, to me, it's like that is this extreme version of. And I could see someone like Juliet, again, just given their case histories. Thank you. I was going to say that in earnest. Um, Juliet just, to me, has a lot more trauma, a lot more abandonment, a lot more, again, the, yeah. the PTSD from a young age, being abandoned, being shipped all over the world, by the way, not just house to house in a town, yeah. all over the world, not being visited for 100 days at a time when she has tuberculosis. Then there's also the fact that she almost died from her lung illnesses. Yeah. I'm not negating Pauline's upbringing either, but it just feels a little bit a little bit more palatable than Juliet's. Sure. So by the end of this, I was like, is it possible that Juliet was? We don't know. Again, like we haven't read all those diaries. We obviously weren't there. So who knows? But it's just also an interesting factor to think about. And the fact that Pauline has reacted in the way she does to me also speaks to that, that it's like these images being that it's like, Juliet is so beautiful. She's like a goddess. She's so great. And look at her. She's living her best life. And I'm doing this thing. I have to live with this guilt of this thing that I did that I really don't feel that great about. But maybe at the end of the day, we'll be together engulfed in flames. You know what I mean? Like it's, well, it's again, fascinating. It will be on the socials, but for you, for in this moment. That's going to haunt me. Yeah. This is the one in particular that stands out to me. There's. A very lot talented of artist. <laughs> well, and that's that also is the first thing I thought. I was like, wow, she's actually really good. Oh boy. But like it's unsettling. It's unsettling. Um yeah, I am I am deeply fascinated. I wish we could have read Juliet's personal diary. Yeah. To see how it lines up with some of the stuff that was in Pauline's. Yeah. Cause it yeah. is also more than possible that Juliet could have done some of the writing in that book that was read. It's also possible that they could have written it together. I mean Well, they were writing so many other things together. Yeah. It's also possible that she considered it like it was kind of considered a diary, but in her mind it was another a different part of this fantasy world that they right. created. And because it make because again, Pauline, you know, she'd spent that time in hospital as a child. It felt like, you know, other than a small, a few small other things, it didn't feel like, again, there was just like a level of trauma that at least we know about like Juliet's. So again, I could see someone who's gone through it and had these different experiences 
really wanting to connect with someone um, and being impressionable and all of those things, I can see that as being possible. Uh, but at the, to that note, then I could see it being, you know, I could see it being 50-50, but it also just feels to me like, Juliet, those parents, like, they they created a absolute nightmare for that child. Yes. Every step of the way. Yep. Every step of the way. Yeah. Um, so again, it's, it's, yeah, it's just very interesting to me. Oh, a hundred percent. I, again, through the majority of the reading into all of this and figuring out my notes, I was like, without sounding glib and without seeming like I'm giving her an out reading it all. I was like, well, that this, it makes sense why she became what she did. Oh yeah. Her Nora did not deserve to die. She especially did not deserve to die in the way that she did. No. And I truly believe those girls should have stayed in prison for longer. Than oh yeah. I, I understand. Agree that. They were yes. Very young at the time, but it's, the, I also understand that in a moment you can get caught up, but to hit somebody to that point with a brick and at one point holding her down while the other one hits her, I mean, that's a level of horrifying that there's no way they should have got out in five years. Well, and again, no way. it wasn't a crime of, uh, it was also so premeditated. They planned it for oh, weeks yeah. ahead of time. Weeks. Yeah. It, it's it's one of those things where you would expect someone to get out that quickly. Well, first of all, it's a sign of that time period, I think. But secondly, right. um, if they had killed an abu- one of their abusers, like Gypsy sure. Rose, is, again, I come back to this one because, again, it, that, was a, that was a mother that, that is ostensibly not literally tortured her child, but ostensibly through giving her unnecessary medical care her entire right. life since she was a baby. That, that child was, was living in a prison of her own body that was created by her mother, right? So, like, to me, when, when that all happened and, and, and they went to jail, I was like, if they, I don't know, there's like a level of it that's like not self-defense, but, but, and again, I'm not in any way defending it. Please don't think that. But I could understand them getting out sooner because there's such a history of severe abuse. As far yeah. as we know with Nora, yes, they got into bad fights, she and Pauline, but again, it's like, was there a severe level of abuse? That would then denote you going, well, they got it after only five years, but it was because this was the nature of the crime. You know what I mean? Like a right. self-defense crime, a, a crime where the, they're, they're murdering someone who's, who's been badly abusing them, physically abusing them for, for years. You, you could understand that. But yeah, in this case, especially Juliet, yeah, who brought the murder weapon, who held her down. I mean, that's bleak. I, yes. I I would expect I wouldn't expect them to have served a full life sentence because they were minors, but I yeah. would have absolutely expected more than five years each. Right? Yeah. And it just shocks me for one to go on and just live a life like nothing happened and then make a career out of writing about murder. 
Well, that's why I feel like the religion thing is so interesting because in a way, she made a career about writing about murder. Pauline is is drawing murals that are dark as hell. Like it doesn't say to me that these two people are absolutely reformed, devout women of God. It says to me that there's either great conflict within them and or it's performative, that it's like hiding in plain sight. Yeah, I could see that. It's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Really fascinating. I mean, again, what a tragedy on so many different levels. It's a tragedy to me that, you know, especially Juliet's childhood was just so awful. And it's a tragedy to me that they committed that crime. Oh, yeah. I Everything... Again, you hear about it and you're like, oh, I get the concept of what happened. But everything you think is going to happen in it, kind of, it goes the other way. Yeah. You think it's going to zag and it zigs. And then you're like, it's going to zig. I know it. And then it zags. And you're like, give me a break. Everything. Like everything that kept coming up, I was like, oh, this is okay. Yeah. And then I was like, oof, there's not really a lot about Pauline now. And then I found the mural and I was like, oh boy. Yeah. It's, uh, again, I hope she kept painting and I hope the paintings got lighter, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. The My idea God. of that being an entire wall in a bedroom. I know. Was she sleeping in that bedroom? Well, because that thing. adds to things too. Yep. I wow. would have walked into that house and gone, I know, thank you. Or I've purchased the home. Here are keys. Please, painter, go in and please have that no longer be there by the time I get in there. Or, you know, just demolish it and rebuild. Maybe that's also. Oh, something. tear down that wall so it's. Not even hidden behind it. Yep, I get that. Yeah, I don't think I'd be comfortable with that being behind a layer of paint. I think I'd have to, that wall is going to have to come out. I would still see it. Yep. See it through the paint. I'm going to see the image you showed me in my nightmares. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When I close my eyes, it's there. Oh, yeah. It's there for sure. Well, listen, Christy Oxborough, amazing work as always. Thank you so much for uh, telling us about this case, which again, just had me buzzing with all my psychology interests i shouldn't say they're my interests but you all know what i mean you're an enthusiast thank you Uh, and thank you dear listeners for joining us for this episode of the show if you haven't already give us a follow on the socials on facebook instagram and youtube at true crime and cocktails on twitter at not detectives and of course as previously mentioned go over to patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails for more information about our subscription-based service over there we have bonus episodes monthly lives, all kinds of great things. It's a lot of fun. And finally, the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out. Official Creep Creek merch is on there now, hoodies, T-shirts, and stickers. So get them while you can. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, True Crime Canada. That's right. It's a Christy curated episode, which, of course, are always my favorite. She does such an amazing job, and I am looking forward to everything that has to bring. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Chris O'Donnell. Yeah, good night, Drew Barrymore.
Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.